Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, good morning to everybody. Um, glad to be able to be here again this morning, but it's 2021 and we don't have uh, a PowerPoint, so I don't know if we can have church today or not, but it's not possible, I don't think, but we're going to do our best. Actually, today we're going to just re- be going through Scripture. That's really all I had for you up on the screen anyway, so get out your phones, get out the, uh, the old style paper Bibles, whatever it is that you have, and uh, we're going to just look into the Word of God the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter uh, 8 is where we're going to be headed here in just a moment. But I also wanted to just real quickly say thank you to you veterans. Uh, Veterans Day a couple days ago and uh, just again want to thank you. So so, uh, just thinking how grateful I am. Appreciate you. Your, the cost, you know, that you put, that you paid, the cost that you put down your life for still the greatest country in the world. Amen. And I don't care what is going on, and no matter what, the, what I say today about the state of our nation or about what we're thinking about the state of our nation, I still love it. But that's really why we grieve also. That's why we're talking about weeping for a nation. is because we love America. We love the country. It's a great place. But oh my goodness, all the things that we see are so grieving to our hearts. In fact, if you think about this, if we never feel grief over the sin in our nation, then something is wrong with us as a church. Something ain't right. John Templeton said, if we were holier, we would be angrier oftener. we were holier, we would be angrier oftener. And I I think we would be weepier oftener too. You know, Jesus cried over Jerusalem in front of his disciples. We have a couple instances in scripture where we see Jesus physically crying. In Luke 19, 41, it says, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus God in the flesh, crying. Now we have a couple moments in Scripture where we see Jesus crying, and the shortest verse in the Bible, as I mentioned, is, is about Jesus crying. It's Jesus wept, and you know that. And I saw how meaningful this phrase is at a funeral recently. I was using this verse in the funeral, and we were just talking about how Jesus cares. He stands by us. Jesus wept. That verse is... Uh, when Jesus was at a funeral, if you will, with Lazarus. And um, Jesus feels our pain. Even though he knows he was going to heal Lazarus, he felt the pain. And afterwards, somebody told me, they said, uh, my family member said that those two words, Jesus wept, that you kept saying from the Bible, those words prompted him to buy a Bible and start reading it. And I knew it was not my words, obviously, it's God's words, that that something struck in his heart that Jesus would weep, that Jesus would weep. And it stirs our hearts to think of a God who cries. 
It, it, you know, in one hand, it might be difficult the, theologically to wrap our minds around this, around a God who has emotions, that there is a God who actually feels things. But we know he has emotions. In fact, the reason that you and I have emotions is because he has emotions. He, we were made in the image of God. So therefore, we feel because he feels. So today, we're going to see weeping. We're going to see emotions. But is it Jeremiah's emotions or is it God's emotions? Is it God's weeping? I like what one commentator said about that. He said, we don't need to decide who because it's both. God didn't want us to know exactly who was weeping. And as we go through this passage, one of the interesting things over these next couple chapters is it's very difficult to, to discern who's speaking. Is it Jeremiah speaking for himself? Is it God speaking through Jeremiah, God's words? Is it the people speaking? There's, there's a lot of that. And so we're going to go through as I think it is, but uh, you know, there's the God has a heart that weeps. So today we're going to see perversity, panic, and pain. But let's first look at what, God's, what leads to God's tears. Remember last week we talked about Jeremiah giving this sermon at the temple, the temple sermon. Right there on the steps of the temple where people were coming to worship God, he just gave them God's word straight. Um, God was outraged at their human sacrifice. He was outraged at them having idols right there in God's house. And then... Outraged that they would take their little babies, their firstborn children, and offer them up to the gods and kill them on the altar just so they could have prosperity in their life. And the following here now is part of that judgment that's pronounced on them for those kind of actions. So Jeremiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1, this is a continuation of the judgment pronounced on them for these things. Verse 1, at that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of the princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, whom they have loved, and whom they have served, and after whom they have walked, and whom they have sought, and whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered, nor be buried. They shall be for dung, Upon the face of the earth. And death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family, which remain in all the places whither I have driven them, saith the Lord of hosts. So he's saying, for those who died before uh, Judah is taken off into exile, a final indignity will be done to those who committed all those vile and wicked acts. The, the, the enemy is going to come and exhume those, their, their bodies and place their bones out in the sun and out before the moon and the stars. And that, of course, was the highest form of contempt you could do for somebody who, who had died in those days. Now, the Babylonians actually did this in their final invasion of Judah in 597 B.C. They, they took the bones out of the tombs and laid them out. And, and as Jeremiah is saying, they're going to be laid out before the sun, moon, and stars who they worshipped. Uh, you folks loved worshiping the sun. You folks love worshiping the moon and the stars. Well, there you go. Your bones are going to rot right out in front of the sun, moon, and stars. What a vivid image of the end result of giving yourself to anything that isn't Jesus, of worshiping anything that isn't Jesus, by having a God of anything 
that isn't Jesus. It, it just means death, and it's rottenness to our bones. And for those who survived, the judgment would be so bad, it says here, that they would prefer death over life, which means that they're going to commit suicide rather than be captured by the Babylonians. You know, the, the Babylonian captivity, which we'll talk about in later chapters, it was so devastating to the people. But you know, when you think about what God is doing here and the reason and thinking back then to them laying their children on, uh, on, the, on the altar and killing their children and driving those drumbeats so that you could uh, not hear the sound of the crying. God never forgot the violence done to those children. God never forgot. And after dealing his blow to the temple trusting, God ignoring, baby killing people, now Jeremiah turns to the spiritual leaders here and the people following them. Verse 4. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refused to return. So there's a major question here that reveals the heart of God as we go through this, and that is, why does the nation not return to me? Why won't they return to me? Verse 4, it says, shall they fall and not arise? The point is, don't most people get up after they fall down? I mean, if you're walking down and you fall and trip, who in their right mind just stays down and never, gets, and never gets up? No one in their right mind would do that. Why won't my people get up? Why won't they return? And God is pointing out the insanity of them staying in their sin and never repenting. They refuse to return. They refuse to return to me. Verse 6, I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times. And the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. He's saying, why are my people so irrational? Why are they so crazy? Most people self-correct when they're headed for disaster. When they see it coming and they know it's coming, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. But my people are running headfirst into destruction like a horse rushing to battle. Like a horse that doesn't know what's about to happen, but he just goes headfirst into that battle. He even says here that birds, that birds even have animal instinct and they know where to go during their migrating season. They know when to go north, they know when to go south, but not my people. They don't know. So basically what God is saying, he's calling them bird brains. <laughs> he said, but actually that would be an insult to the birds. You're, the, even the birds know where to go, but you don't know where to turn. You're headed for destruction. You're headed for judgment and you're not even listening. God says, my people know not the judgment of the Lord. Now think about this. You people, he says, Jeremiah confronts them. My people don't even know the judgment of the Lord. Now, I'm sure the spiritual leaders who he's talking to took offense at that. 
How dare Jeremiah say that we don't know the judgment or the righteous ways or the ways of God? Imagine going into some liberal Christian university today and walking into a classroom and telling the professor there, you know nothing of the word of God. See, the very thing that they pride themselves on is the very thing that God's putting his finger on, but their actions were proving they know nothing. God had never wanted child sacrifice. He certainly did never told them to go worshiping other gods. He's, he very explicitly told them not to. But even about this child sacrifice, God told them, God says a couple times in scripture, it never even entered his mind. It never even entered the mind of God to say something like that. The God of heaven would not do that. He gave them even an example on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. If they would have known the judgment of the Lord, if they would have understood the word of God, they would understand how this played out. See, the, this is the one time God told someone to sacrifice his child. The one time. And then, when he was about to do it, what did God do? He stopped him. And Ab- he told Abraham, you don't kill him. And instead, he provided a substitute. A substitute. You kill this animal instead. It was an example The people were sacrificing children for prosperity, but God would provide their eternal prosperity through the Messiah, the substitute. This is the judgment of God. This is the word of God. This is what all this means. But my people didn't know, didn't get it. They didn't understand the judgment of the Lord. And then God doubles down. Verse 8, how do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. The, the spiritual leaders had all kinds of pride, and they were saying, we are wise, and the, Lord, the law of the Lord is with us, but God strikes that down. Literally, what he says next is, the pen of lies has made it a lie, is literally how that reads. This does not mean that the scribes copied the Bible incorrectly, but it means that they interpreted the Bible incorrectly. It means that they may have written the Bible down. They may maybe have written some of the law down to, to copy it, but they didn't know the Bible. They had the Bible, but the Bible didn't have them. Did you know that only one-fifth, one-fifth of evangelicals read their Bible every day? Lots of people have Bibles, but few let the Bible have them. You know, the inspirational verse of the day, that's not going to cut it. We need to know the word of God. We need to know the word of God. But these scribes, they took the word of God. They had the Bible, but the Bible didn't have them. And they twisted truth to meet their desires. And so they would twist the Bible and they could make it sound however they wanted to make it sound. They They could do whatever they wanted with it. By the way, anybody could do that. You take a verse here and a verse there, and you can make up any religion you can come up, want to come up with. But, you know, that makes for a very effective lie. They found ways to get around the hard parts of the law. And these people who claimed to be wise, who were supposed to be helping people understand the scriptures, they were liars. Verse 9, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them? 
Therefore will I give their wives unto others, and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one, from the least even unto the greatest, is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. So these scribes, priests, and prophets, these spiritual leaders would face severe judgment just like everyone else. Their death would mean that others would come and take everything that was theirs. Now, we may not be able to judge the inner motivation of a spiritual leader or anybody. We, I don't know the inner motivation of anybody. But God knows the heart of these false teachers. And God knows the heart of every, every teacher, every preacher, every writer. And all of them here, when he was talking about these guys, he said all of them are given to covetousness. This is their heart. This is the, this is the driving motivation. And that, that Hebrew word, covetousness, means profit or unjust gain. It's the age-old motivation. Pretty much when you boil it down, covetousness is at the heart of every cult and every false religion. It is led by someone who has a lust for profit of some kind, a lust for something. And God is going to bring all of that to justice. Covetousness, covetousness. Wanting, I like what somebody uh, define covetousness, wanting something that you already have enough of. <laughs> wanting something that you already have enough of. What's, uh, when, when is enough? When is it, when is it enough? Uh, just a little more is what usually people will say. And God was going to bring all of this to justice. And you know, by the way, when we think about cults and false religions and the driving force and the motivation behind those people at the head of those I just, I always think of how different Jesus is and how different Jesus was. Jesus came to serve and not be served. And this is unique among all the religions. There was no hidden desire in the heart of Christ. He was a giver. He was not a taker. He even gave his very life. And, and, and he never had a harem. He never bilked people for their money. He was the exact opposite of covetous. You don't see those things in Jesus, ever. Amazing. Jesus is unique. Jesus is different. So what were these false teachers teaching? Verse 11, here was their message. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, <clears throat> saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This word slightly means trickery. They were softening, through trickery, they were softening the hard messages of the Bible. They were softening the hard, hard parts of the law. They were healing people, quote unquote. They were healing people when God wanted the message to hurt. <laughs> he wanted them to, it to hurt for their own good. And the false message was, that they were preaching was, just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep doing what you're doing, folks. God is at peace with you. Everything's fine. Their theme song was, everything is awesome. <laughs> everything is cool. All is happy, happy, happy. All, everything is great. But the truth was that, there, that sin and idolatry was destroying them. It was destroying their nation. People were dancing in the streets in oblivion while the armies of judgment were gathering their troops right outside. 
pastors and teachers of today who never speak against sin are only doing more damage than good. Uh, I, I, I have to uh, be joyful. I have to look at the glass as uh, half full. I do. I just have to because I, I have to stay sane. And there is so much joy for a Christian. We can be joyful at any time. But to never, ever speak against sin or to never, never call sin what it really is or say the bad and the hard parts of Scripture, that's just doing more damage than good. And you can see this playing out on the, on the day of judgment, can't we? People standing before God saying, my, my pastor told me that there was no literal hell. That the, the college there taught him that there was no literal hell. That's not really what the Bible said. That preacher on TV said that God is just always pleased with me. He's just pleased with me all the time. I, I thought it was just those old hellfire preachers that believed all that judgment stuff. I want to read this to you. There was a recent interview by a popular blogger. Her name was Jen Hatmaker. Who, she was asked this. She was asked, do you think an LGBT relationship can be holy? And here's what she replied. I do. And she's a Christian. I do, she said. And my views here are tender. This is a very nuanced conversation, and it's hard to nail down in one sitting. I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and the church. Every believer that witnesses that much that much overwhelming sorrow should be tender enough to do some hard work here. Not even exactly sure what she said there, but anyway. But then, take this now. This is from a former lesbian, Rosaria uh, Butterfield. And she reproved Hatmaker for this tenderness th that leaves people really in their sin. And here's what she wrote. She said, if this were 1999... The year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved, instead of 2016 when she was writing this, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a balm of Gilead. I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. But today I hear Jen's words and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999? Or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary but stands against the word of God, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature deceives us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. 
It's also deep in the caverns of our own hearts. Wow. Some amazing words and some truth. She said, but if I would have heard those peace, peace, all is peace, that would have been like a millstone around my neck. See, the loving thing to do is to speak the truth for people. The leaders in Jeremiah's day were doing that, were doing the same thing. They were putting millstones around people's necks. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Verse 12, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There, be sh- there shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. You, you people have forgotten what shame over sin even feels like. No one can blush anymore. Sexual perversion, wicked living was so pervasive that people had seen it all. Does that not sound like America 2021 AD or, or is it still Judah 650 BC? I mean, it's both the same here. Nothing new under the sun. But God wouldn't allow this to continue forever and he will bring great judgment on even the land itself, even the, the fig trees and the vines. So Jeremiah sees the judgment coming very vividly. Look in verse 14. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health and behold trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. Now these are all the sights and the sounds of the coming invasion that God is going to allow to come from Babylon, from the north. He's talking about the sound alone of the enemy coming was going to put them into a panic. You know, I, I lis- listened to a, um, a documentary about D-Day and this soldier was talking about coming out on the, the beaches there and, and storming, as they were storming the beaches, he said, I, I came out there and all of us were on the beaches and we saw the enemy, we heard the sounds and the fear was just so overwhelming to me. He said, I looked down at my arms and I could just feel the panic in my, in my chest I looked down at my arms and there was blood coming from my pores. You know, Jesus said, I sweat, or Jesus says that Jesus sweat great drops of blood. It's, it's a bodily function that happens when you're under such duress, your pores actually will, there, there will be blood coming out of your pores. This is what I think about as Jesus, or as God here talks about the sound of the horses, that, or the sound coming from Dan. The Babylon was going to come in and totally decimate the land. Many were going to die. Many were going to be hauled off into captivity. Many were going to be left in poverty. Imagine being Jeremiah and actually seeing this in your mind's eye as God describes it to you and then you give it. This was your own nation. These were your own people. 
These were your family members. These were people that you loved even though they were wicked. And this brings great pain and deep grief to Jeremiah's heart. He can hardly stand it. Look how personally it, he feels the emotions of this. Verse 18, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. But again, let me say this. These words also might be the words of God himself. It's hard to determine who's speaking. God is speaking through Jeremiah here, so we don't know if there's a break or if it's just God saying, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint within me. But again, we don't have to choose. It's both. Remember, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's God's heart. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in judging people. But I have to. Although it might be difficult theology, again, to understand, but God can be angry and in pain at the same time. Amen. Honestly, I think any parent can understand this. <laughs> there are times in your own heart where you're so angry with what you see, maybe with your child, but you're also so hurt. They've hurt you. Also, any jilted spouse any spouse who's had another one who's run off with another, you can be angry and grieve and in pain at the same time. God hates to send judgment, but he must. Verse 19, Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Yes, he has been there all along. Is not her king in her? Yes, He's been begging you to turn to him. And God says, why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? See, the people will say in verse 20, the harvest is past. The summer is ended and we're not saved. Now, this was a proverbial saying, meaning that people had lost every opportunity given them by God. And now they were entirely without hope. See, people are going to look back with deep regret. I, I should have taken salvation when I had the chance. Was there a God in, was there a Lord in Zion? Yes, he was there. Was, was there a king there that you could have turned to? Yes, he was there the entire time waiting for you. But now the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and you're not saved. They're going to look back with deep regret. It reminds me of the story that Jesus told about the rich man who went to hell, doesn't it? And he cried out for relief from the torment in hell. And in such regret, why didn't I take the chance for salvation when I could have? To think that there might be some that come to church regularly, that come to the home church even regularly, but have never put their full trust in Jesus Christ, that have never taken Jesus as their Savior. I will tell you, when I think of that, I can't think of that too long before I just start getting so grieved in my heart. Such deep sadness that there could be some people who come to church but have never put their faith in Jesus. One day, it's going to be all over for us. The harvest is going to be ended. The summer is going to be done. And all the chances for salvation will be over. And my question to you sitting here this morning 
and to you if you're listening to me right now on a podcast, is will you be saved? Will you be saved? You can just see Jeremiah weeping as he says these words. Look at verses 21 and 22. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black, meaning covered in sackcloth and black ashes. Astonishment had taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Gilead, it was a land just east of the Jordan River, and it was known for its healing balsams. You could get a healing balm there. Scholars tell us that they've, they've been unable to determine exactly how the balm of Gilead was made. But it seems to be something like a, a soothing aromatic resin from a tree or a plant, and they, see, they think it's a lot like aloe vera. Jeremiah is saying the healing medicine for the sickness of my nation was right there at our fingertips. It's right there. It's right over in Gilead. And he asks, is, is, is there no balm there? Is there no physician right there to help heal? And the answer to those questions is yes. There was a balm in Gilead. There was a physician that could save them. This is a messianic prophecy. The balm of Gilead is Jesus. Amen. He is the great physician. They could have turned to him at any time and, and could have been saved. And it's the same as today. Anyone, anyone can turn to Jesus. There is a balm in Gilead for everyone. There is a physician there for everyone. And he is like a balm for your soul. As the old preacher said, if you've got the disease called sin, you need the gospel. <laughs> If you've got the disease called sin, you need the gospel. You, you, ladies, you ladies, this past week I heard, got to hear the precious story, uh, life story of Emily Boncho on Monday night, if you were there at the Ladies' Night Out. What a story I heard. How God has saved her, a precious lady in our church. And the life that uh, she was forced to live as a child and then as she grew older, what an amazing salvation story. But you in here, many of you have a, have a balm of Gilead story. You have a, your own story about how God saves, and he still saves, and he still heals. It's a great verse from the song by Phil Wickham, House of the Lord. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way, because he hung upon the cross, then he rose from the grave. My God's still rolling stones away. That's what he does for people. He takes the dead people and makes them live. Stop pushing him away. Stop pushing him away. Give your life to Jesus. I'm going to end with this. There's the Japanese researchers that have come up with something they said is going to revolutionize medicine. They have developed artificial blood. It can be transfused into, into patients regardless of their blood type. It does not matter. And it, it vastly improves chances of survival in several different ways. First of all, if you're in an emergency situation, you don't have to determine the blood type. You can just give this blood right away. You don't have to store it, store the blood in certain temperatures and over certain time and all that. Uh, this can be stored for 20 days at room temperature. And so, uh, or actually up to a year, they even say. 
So here's what the professor that helped come up with this, he says, it is difficult to stock a sufficient amount of blood for transfusion in such regions as remote islands. The artificial blood will be able to save the lives of people who were otherwise could not be saved. Um, so all of this, it's, it's, they say it's going to help injured patients being treated in, they can treat it in the ambulances. There's no negative side effects such as blood clotting. Nothing. This is great. It's a miracle cure. Artificial blood. But listen to this. I like, like what somebody said. The non-artificial blood of Jesus saves everyone who receives it. There are no compatibility issues. There's no scarcity of supply. And it lasts for all eternity. It lasts for all eternity. The blood of Jesus. It's the balm of Gilead. It's, it's the salvation for the soul. Lord, I thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.